Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Hello everybody and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski, and I'm joined by Tyson Davis. How are you today, Tyson? I'm good, Alex. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Pretty good. It's been a busy day for me in the lab, but uh, when all is said and done, it's been pretty good, I guess. Um, what have you been up to lately? Uh, not too much. I just uh, really not liking these Ontario heat wave, hot summer days, this 31 degree stuff. Not really built for that. Yeah, it's been pretty crazy. I um, So, Shulik Medicine and Dentistry School has like wellness Tuesday things. So, it has like, you know, yoga in the field and like weight training and stuff. Like, just every week there's some kind of event that you could go to in the afternoon. And uh, I regret to say I haven't been able to make it out to any of those. But. You know, they're trying to take care of their own, and it's a very nice idea. However, today it was actually cancelled because of a heat warning, so it's it's that hot. Uh, you don't want to be outside running around. At least, while well, I was walking over here, it was pretty nice, though. The evenings are pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's nice in the evening, but it's uh, way too hot in the middle of the day. Welcome to London. Um, anyway... Speaking of welcome to London, we're joined today by Dr. Jeff Keelan. He's a postdoc working with Dr. Jonathan Vance in the history department. Um, so you just finished your PhD in Waterloo uh, yes. recently? What, tell uh, us about that. Well, I, I just defended in January. It was actually the very last day before I had to pay for another term of tuition, so it was very good timing for me. And, uh, and then I graduated in June, and it was a big relief, let me tell you. Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. You know, everyone working on a graduate degree is, is always thrilled pretty much to hear when we hear about someone successfully completing. Uh, and we also, I don't know, dream of the day where we ourselves <laughs> may be able to do the same thing. Um, so when did you come to London? Uh, I've actually been in London for a couple years now because uh, my partner started a grad program at the, in the history department at Western. So I'd been living here for a year or so already when oh. I uh, graduated. Okay. Well, that's pretty cool. So mm. was it difficult? Like, did you have to commute back and forth a lot? or what was Yeah, like? I was still TAing at Waterloo, so I often was going up uh, once or twice a week to night classes sometimes. Uh, and during the winter, you have to drive right through the snow belt, so that gets a bit hectic. But uh, since I graduated, it's been a, lo- a lot nicer just staying here in London, except, of course, for this heat wave, which is terrible. <laughs> and I have no yeah. air conditioning. Yeah, me neither. Oh. I feel you there. <laughs> Oh, geez. Um, so how did you like Waterloo while you were there? And Tyson actually is a yeah, I Waterloo did, uh, grad Yeah, I did my himself. master's in Waterloo as well. Um, how, do you, how did you find the transition from Waterloo to London? Well, I lived in Waterloo for 10 years. I did my undergrad there at Laurier and my MA at Waterloo, PhD at Waterloo. So I actually I really missed Waterloo because I had, I had so many roots there. So moving to London was a bit rough. Uh, it definitely has a different character to it, especially I live down... Uh, Adelaide and Dundas area, which is a, a very different part of the city than I think most students at Western experience. Uh, so that was that, that was interesting, but I've slowly been growing to like London. There's a lot of things to do here that you wouldn't be able to find in Waterloo. Yeah, I found the transition. Um, I, I find Waterloo is a very student-oriented city. So every like you, you run into so many students there, but whereas London, I find more of a young professional city. So most of the people I run into downtown you know, will have, there'll be young professionals just finishing their degrees and in the workforce. So I like that kind of change personally between the two cities. You're talking to a guy who went to U of T, so 
the the difference between Toronto and London's, I guess, the al- alternate directions, it feels a lot smaller to me, but it feels just right, uh, especially for this time in my life. I really enjoy being a grad student here. Um, but speaking of transitions, um, how did you find the transition from being a grad student to being a postdoc, and what was that like? Uh, it was actually really nice. I think I was expecting a bit more impact, but I uh, I started my postdoc in May, so it was a very short time between finishing the thesis and then starting this new uh, area of a study. And I, you, you just have built up this moment when you're going to finish your doctoral uh, degree, and you think it's going to be a lot bigger than it is. But really, it was it was relaxing almost because. I'm doing the exact same thing I was doing during the uh, doctorate. I'm writing, reading, researching, all those things, but with a lot less stress. There's not a supervisor looking over my shoulder telling me, you got to get this done, you got to get this done. So it was, uh, it's actually been very nice. (laughs) Wow, okay. That's totally different from what I was expecting to hear. I thought you were going to say something like, oh, it's so much more responsibility. (laughs) You don't want to do this. Okay, so good to know. I I really like that. how did you find this particular postdoc that fit nicely with your previous research? Uh, well, this is a, a Shirk postdoc, so one of the aspects of that is stressing to the, the committee that decides this that there is this link between what you're doing now and what you want to do. So as I was kind of putting this the idea together, I, I really had to consider what the links were and, and in, in the application make those very clear. So that, that made it a lot easier, I think. Okay. What is a Shirk postdoc? Uh, Shirk, just in case people don't know, is the Social Science Humanities Research Council, which is the humanities uh, part of the tri-agency funding network that comes out of the federal government. And I think the sciences have one. And yeah, maybe It's called NSERC for the sciences. That might yeah. be the one um, you recall hearing about during your degree, Alex. Yeah, NSERC would be the natural sciences, and then... It's I natural think sciences, engineering, research council. Yeah, yeah. so that's NSERC, but then there's the Canadian Institute of Health Research, so that's CIHR, so that's probably the... And that's the third one. I'm guessing that's yeah. the third one. Yeah. <laughs> and I know nothing about those other two. I've yeah. never, yeah, never looked I at them at all. Yeah, I have experience with NSERC applications, and I'm sure you have experience with the... CIHR. There that's you go. <laughs> so we got all three. Nice. So, so SHRC funding, or SHRC postdoc is a really good postdoc to get, uh, but it requires a very clear vision of what your postdoc project is. Uh, and a lot of other postdocs tend to be tailored towards specific ideas or specific faculty. But for Shirk postdoc, it's almost entirely on the individual forming a connection with an institution, with a, a potential advisor, and selling that connection to uh, the Shirk committee. So you found your advisor before you applied for the Shirk uh, postdoc. Yeah, I, I very consciously chose Western and mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Vance because I knew that they were a, a good fit for what I wanted to do. Okay. That's really cool. So tell us about your PhD research a little bit and then we'll see how it fits into what you're going to be doing. Yeah. Um, my PhD research uh, looks at a French Canadian nationalist named Henri Bourassa, who's one of the the most famous French Canadian nationalist is arguably the grandfather of Quebec uh, neo nationalism today, which we identify with separatism and uh, is probably more familiar to, to listeners. Uh, but Barassa was very heavily involved in forming the, the roots of the French Canadian nationalist movement in the early, th- early 20th century. And he was also very famously opposed to a lot of 
uh, foreign endeavors taken on by Canada. And at this time, it was generally imperialist endeavors in connection with the British Empire. And so Barassa's rejection of imperialism led him to oppose things like the Boer War, which was a war from 1899 to 1901, the First World War, uh, and the Second World War, and was probably one of the most passionate and evocative voices during many of these conflicts in terms of organizing French-Canadian resistance. So my thesis looks at his experience of the First World War, and understandably, Barassa has been very uh, studied very broadly by Canadian historians, but none have yet, or few have yet, I should say, uh, looked specifically at the First World War and how that influenced his perspectives, and I think... Uh, after completing my research, we can say the First World War really divides his career between what he thought politically, what he thought about Canada, his vision of the Canadian nation uh, before the war, and then after the war, he has a very different understanding of what he was doing, what he should be doing, and as a result, he, is, he kind of, uh, the French Canadian nationalist movement uh, breaks apart and he becomes less influential, and we begin to see the rise of a more Quebec-focused nationalism, which leads into the separatist movement we know today. Mm-hmm. So, I just like, um, I guess, like to show how that's different. Maybe you could give like a little bit on pre-World War One Quebecois nationalism, the, the religious one. Um. So uh, the nationalist movement in Quebec, uh, which was better described as the French-Canadian nationalist movement because it included all French uh, speakers in Canada, was founded by Bourassa and some other uh, Quebec intellectuals. And it focused essentially on uh, envisioning a Canada that was separate from the British Empire, one that wasn't uh, connected to British foreign policy, economic policy, and that could forge its own path as a separate Canadian nation. And this sounds very familiar to us today because we've you know, we live in our own Canada and sounds like a, a real strong Canadian nationalism, but at that time it was very much uh, divergent from the views of the majority of English Canadians who believed that the legacy of the British Empire in North America was being upheld by Canada and closer connections to that empire would only ensure future Canadian prosperity. So Barassa kind of set up uh, his own path for Canadians by envisioning this this autonomous nation that could do what it wants uh, and could have its own identity that was not connected to Europe in a direct way. Uh, And particularly, he was very much uh, influenced by Catholicism, which uh, might seem strange to us today, but it uh, greatly affected his views of, of the state and how the government should act, what was the role of the individual in relation to the state, in relation to the church, and this greatly influenced his political ideas, and I argue in my thesis that it influenced his rejection of the First World War and his reaction to events during the war itself. Okay. Um, I had a question, and I just lost it. Because, <laughs> um, I hate it when this happens. Well, so, could, oh, I, got I, it? I got it back. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's embarrassing. Um, so you were, you were saying that... It, World War One shaped his own opinion, so pre and post World War One. So, what what exactly was he like before, and then what was he like after? And yeah, well, I think before the war, he was very much convinced by a, a future for Canada that was bilingual and bicultural. That French and English Canadians could come together to form a new Canadian identity that accepted both equally. 
Uh, and, and for the 15 years leading up to the war, that's essentially what he tried to do by rejecting connections to, to Britain, by bringing together English and French Canadian voices. He, he had long tours of English Canada where he would just go and talk to audience, audiences extolling this vision of Canada that was you know, autonomous and independent. But during the war, because of events like the rise of militarism, the conscription crisis where Canada enacts conscription in 1917, uh, Easter riots which take place in Quebec in uh, April 1918, where English-speaking soldiers fire on Quebec civilians and kill some of them because of their uh, protests against the enactment of conscription. These events led Barassa to grow increasingly disillusioned with this vision of Canada. And I argue that by the end of the war, he realizes that uh, his vision can no longer come to pass, that English and French Canadians are so irrevocably separated by their experience of the war where French Canadians reject it and English Canadians support it, that he, he understands that that Canada can no longer exist and that another Canada will come to pass and it's one he's going to have a lot less uh, influence on and a lot less participation within. Um, if I if I may, uh, so what this does, like as uh, what people in history would do, is this um, challenges kind of the periodization of this movement. And this is where I, I'm really curious because most uh, conventional histories of Quebec nationalism shows this change more happening in the 1950s with the Quiet Revolution. And so I'm interested about. Um, what happened in those those inter like um how come the uh quiet revolution is known as the time when this like this different uh aspect of Quebec nationalism is known as or French nationalism is more predominant and so like what's going on in like the post war years before this? Like what what I I guess I'm kinda jumbling there, but Well I think <laughs> Like when we talk about the idea of separatism, we can point to a lot of historical precedents. There are mm -hmm. people in the 19th century who believe that Canada ought to uh, be separate from Britain, or even Quebec ought to be separate from Canada. Uh, but the, the 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 large chunk of the French Canadian nationalist movement, as led by Bourassa and a few others, believed that French Canada had its place within Canada as a whole, that they, that they were French Canadians and that you couldn't separate those two identities. But, and then, you know, it is the 1960s where separatism really rises in full force and you have René Lévesque and the Parti Québécois. But the roots of that separation, the roots of that dissatisfaction with, a, you know, a united vision of Canada, I would argue, start in the First World War where the enactment of conscription proves to many French Canadians that the English Canadian majority, if it wants to do something, will vote in legislation like conscription that will force the French Canadian minority to do something they don't want to do, which mm -hmm. in this case is fight in a war that they didn't believe in. And so out of coming out of that into the 1920s and 30s, uh, you have a, a sort of new nationalist movement forming around new people, new individuals who are no longer convinced that Canada is a place where... French Canadians and Quebecois should be, that they need to go on their own path. And it takes many decades and many iterations before it becomes the separatism we know today, but that's where it begins. Speaking of the separatism of today, um, so you, you read a blog called Cleo's Current, and you sent uh, the link to me, so I was looking through that, um, and it, it looks really cool. I hadn't heard of it before you sent it to me. Um, 
but but we're going to get into talking a little bit more about it later on. Um, but I am really interested in it, and I'm I'm curious about what what you might say about um, this type of stuff, Henri Barassa, on today's Quebec. Um, so I, I know you have written about him before on your blog. So what, what would you? How would you relate what happened uh, in the early 1900s to what's happening today? Uh, well, I, I think that you know, if I had to just choose some lesson to draw from Barassa's experiences, it would be that uh, ultimately French and English Canadians, or you know, today would say English Canadians and Quebecois really have to try to understand the other perspective and understand that their vision of Canada or their vision of the province comes from a unique set of cultural and historical experiences. So today, you know, it's died out since the 1995 referendum, but it may still be an election issue, the Clarity Act and the NDP position on it and the Liberal position on it, and whether or not this is a, uh, a justifiable uh, bar to set for separating from from Canada, and if you don't know, the Clarity Act essentially says that it has to be a majority of Quebecois voters who vote to separate, whereas the NDP, who are against the Clarity Act, says it only needs to be 50 plus 1, uh, which is, you know, uh, 51 versus 66% or some other number. It's not actually clear. Uh, and so that may be an election issue. And there's a lot of misunderstanding between the two sort of the two solitudes, as they've been called about why this should be, you know, why that's such a sticking point. And I think it's important for English Canadians to try to understand that the Quebecois have had a very long and uh, arguably persecuted history within Canada, and so they may want to separate and they may believe that there's a, a reason for it. Uh, and at the same time, I think Quebecois needs to understand that English Canadians have their own set of historical circumstances that see a united Canada and separation is, is just the, you know, beyond the pale. And I think Barassa really believed in trying to bring together these two perspectives, and today we should probably still try to achieve that goal. That's what I was going to say next, actually. Do you, do you think that, I guess, the, the Barassa of old... Um, you know the optimistic guy that that we that you described to us from before World War One. Um, do you think that, given the state of today, um, he would have still been optimistic? And do you think that it is possible for for the French Canadian and, and Anglophone Canadians uh, to coexist well, uh, well together? I absolutely think that they can coexist. I think uh, we might have to work at it a bit more. We're we're lucky that right now it's not as big as an issue as it was twenty, thirty, or forty years ago. But as to what Barassa would think of today, I think he would be uh, a bit astounded. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a bit confusing because we talk about, you know, Canadian nationalism, Quebec nationalism, French-Canadian nationalism. But to Barassa, there was Canadian nationalism, and he envisioned a French-Canadian perspective on it, which is not the Canadian nationalism we know today. It's not the English-Canadian idea that's kind of come out of the Vimy myth and, and you know, what you would see in as nationalist in 2015, and that's something that would be very foreign to Burasa. He, he would not understand that sort of, the, the, the vision of Canada that exists today. It would be uh, completely out of his worldview. Okay. So this was the, fo- the topic of your PhD research. How is this going to tie in to what you're going to be carrying forward now uh, with your research here at Western? 
Uh, well, my postdoc research is essentially examining Canadian political culture uh, during and immediately after the First World War. And I'm looking at a wide, wide variety of sources, uh, including, you know, parliamentary debates, newspapers, books, a lot of uh, different textual documents, and trying to understand this shift between a more imperialist-focused Canada, one that believes in the connection to the British Empire, and a more nationalist Canada. And we know that this change occurs in, in, from 1914 to the 1920s, but we're less clear on exactly how, why, and when it occurs. So what my research is doing is using digital tools to help examine this huge body of sources to identify uh, how this transition has occurred. So you say you're using digital tools to study it. What, what do you, as somebody not really familiar with historical methods, uh, what do you mean when you, mean, when you say digital tools? Well, I, what, I've, what I'm planning to do, it has yet to happen because I'm in the early stages, but I want to use something called topic modeling, which essentially identifies words that occur together in a large body of text. And by putting in uh, certain key terms related to my topic of study, like nationalism, imperialism, commonwealth, and so forth, I can identify what other words appear next to these at high frequencies and then begin to understand a bit better what, how Canadians were describing things like imperialism and nationalism during these years and begin to understand kind of what were the things that were part of their belief system associated with these concepts. So this is, from my understanding, you're going to get like almost a high-throughput analysis of a lot of material uh, at once and then see what the associations are and, and build from there? So. Yeah, and then use that to identify specific limited pages that I should look at rather than having to go through 100,000 pages of text, I can only go through 10,000, which is a lot less work. So, just um, my mathematical mind just immediately thinks, you have to do a fair bit of math to do this. There, there has to be uh, you know, you, you've got to write a code to do that. I don't know if you have um, a code already in place, like if there's a package already out there for this, or this is something you have to build yourself, but it seems like you'd need some pretty heavy mathematics to uh, to totally iron this out completely. Yeah, I, I'm using something called R language. Uh, I've just recently started learning it, uh, and it there is some huge mathematical formula that describes f word frequency, but luckily a computer does it, so I have no involvement in that whatsoever. So for, for you math geeks out there, it's uh, it technically uses Bayesian analysis to find the words, which is a statistical way of finding correlations. All right. Interesting. So, so that was already built into this R language. You could just run with it, right? Yeah. Well, there, like topic modeling is a is a, a, a program that uses this Bayesian stuff, and um, it's it's that's all behind the scenes. That's yeah. under the hood. I don't I don't look at that stuff. There's a lot of statistics. So using softwares such as this, uh, and moving forward, I guess, uh, what do you see for the future of history? It's kind of Whoa. a cool way to put it. Oh, oh gosh. I, choose your words carefully. <laughs> I could go on about this. I think uh, digital history, I think, is the way forward. And not only digital history, but history in the digital age. I mean, uh, things like podcasts, <laughs> things like blogs. These are ways that we can communicate to the public about history, which are, are very similar to the ways we've done in the past, but also very revolutionary, a very low cost, but wide audience, potentially. And I think one of the greatest transitions that historians are facing in the 21st century is understanding that 
there is a duty to use these digital tools and these digital platforms like the internet uh, to to communicate history and to make it uh, a lot more you know real to people who are used to just reading it in books or textbooks. And you're doing that already with with Clio's Current. So can you tell us a little bit about Clio's Current, the the blog that we referred to earlier? Yeah, and and I that's one of the reasons I started Clio's Current with a couple of other historians up at Waterloo was that we wanted to you know talk about contemporary events using a historical perspective. And we wanted to use the internet to communicate this not only to people that we know, but to Canadians, to people across the world, uh, and and sort of demonstrate that history is not just these this dry lecture or you know sometimes an exciting lecture in the university classroom, but rather can be used to help us better understand things that are happening right now. That's really cool. Is it a lot of work to do it? And uh, I I find it's not that much work. I mean. And it's it's a lot more fun than writing academic writing. So it it's uh, it's usually something I do to take off steam, you know, to depressurize from writing a thesis. <laughs> That's really cool. So I just have one last question. So if people are considering reading your blog, um, what would you, what would you give them as a, a really good reason to check it out? Oh gosh, uh, I think that it, if you're interested in history and you're interested in the way history connects to the present in sometimes unusual ways, uh, it's worth checking out and worth kind of seeing what we're doing over there and, and maybe and it's, for the, it's for the experienced historian or the amateur historian or someone who knows nothing whatsoever. So we really try to appeal to a broad audience. Thank you very much for letting us know about your research, about Clio's Current, and what it's like to be a postdoc. Um, I'm Alex Mozinski, and this is GradCast. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you all next week. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at gradcastradio, and look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com, and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.